maybe someone in the government should just open up a history book and read the last thousand years of this region and Afghanistan in particular. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's illustrious panel, returning to the roundup, is former Democratic senator from Alabama, CNN political commentator, and a former U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Alabama, the one and only Doug Jones. Senator, welcome back. Thanks so much. Great to be with you guys. Making his roundup debut, Michael Steele. Michael is an MSNBC political analyst, the former lieutenant governor of Maryland, and a former chairman of the Republican National Committee. He's a graduate of Georgetown Law and Aspen Institute Rodell Fellow in Public Leadership, a University of Chicago Institute of Politics Fellow and Senior Fellow at Brown University's Institute for International and Public Affairs. He's also the host of the Michael Steele Podcast. Michael, welcome to the roundup. Oh, it's good to be with you. Hello. And sliding in for our first segment today, thank you, Hagar Shamali. Hagar is a former spokesperson for the UN mission to the UN. She has also served as the spokesperson for the Treasury's Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence and was a senior policy sanctions advisor at the Department of Treasury and a Middle East director at the National Security Council in the Obama White House. She's an adjunct professor at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs and the host and creator of Oh My World on YouTube, a show that breaks down geopolitics and world news stories in a fun and easy way. Great work, Hagar. And she occasionally moonlights over at MSNBC. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Ron. So happy to be here. Up first this week, we're going to discuss a bombshell new report from the U.S. government's top Afghanistan watchdog about the failure to follow through on promises to our Afghan allies and his congressional testimony that he cannot guarantee the U.S. government isn't funding the Taliban. Then we'll discuss Fox News' settlement with Dominion Voting Systems in their defamation lawsuit and how it could impact further attempts to subvert our elections. Finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we're going to discuss America's police exodus and the challenges with recruiting and retaining police officers across the country. To get ad-free access to the show, plus many more special episodes on a private podcast feed, head over to politicology.com slash plus, or click the link at the top of today's show notes. We'll dive right in after this. Okay, every U.S. government agency has an Office of Inspector General, and their role is to conduct independent and objective audits and investigations into the programs and operations of that agency in order to promote efficiency and effectiveness. And on Wednesday, the U.S. government's Afghanistan watchdog told Congress that he cannot say with certainty that U.S. aid flowing into Afghanistan is not currently funding the Taliban. President Obama appointed this Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, or SIGAR, John Sopko, to his role in 2012. So before we dive in here, I just want to make it clear to listeners that Sopko isn't a Republican hack who the committee rolled out to take partisan swings at the Biden administration. He has over 30 years of experience in oversight and investigations. He served as a federal prosecutor in the DOJ Organized Crime and Racketeering Section. He spent 20 years on the Hill. Uh, I could go on and on. Um... But one of the big concerns in the report and in Sopko's testimony was the inability to directly to directly observe distribution of assistance since the withdrawal. And since the U.S. troop withdrawal and the Taliban retook the country, there's been a festering humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. 
Uh, the U.S. government policy since then has been to support the Afghan people without assisting the Taliban by providing aid through UN and NGOs. Uh, but according to the report, the Taliban is imposing customs charges on shipments coming into the country. They're taxing the NGOs directly. They're adding fees to vendors like landlords and cell phone companies who can pass those fees on to NGOs. And the inability to track the money going from the U.S. to these NGOs and the U.N. to humanitarian projects uh, because we don't have observers on the ground is what led to the most explosive line in Sopko's testimony that we cannot say with certainty that the United States government is not funding the Taliban. So uh, just one more point on this. I want to underscore for anyone who has forgotten or has amnesia about the brutality of the Taliban, uh, there have been widespread accusations of civil rights abuses, including gang rapes, forced marriage, sex slavery, They've held public executions and floggings for crimes like theft and illegitimate relationships. These aren't just the atrocities they've committed in the 90s. They have been committed since Kabul fell in 2021. So, Hagar, I'd like you to lead off here and help us understand the nuances of the national security implications here. How how serious uh, is this in your mind? Well, you're not going to love what I'm about to say, but the fact to me as somebody who worked in foreign policy for 12 years in the U.S. government, John Sopko's statement wasn't that surprising. It was very blunt and refreshingly honest and quite outstanding, not in a good way. But the fact is that the U.S. government is used to, when dealing in areas that are war zones or where you have terrorist groups or other militias that control territory, but where you have a U.S. foreign policy of delivering humanitarian aid or supporting a certain population, they are used to the possibility that aid could fall into the wrong hands. It's not that the U.S. government has a tolerance for it, and they really genuinely do everything they can to avoid it. But in a situation like Afghanistan, where the Taliban really controls everything, it's not like, for example, Somalia, where al-Shabaab controls certain areas, or Nigeria, where Boko Haram controls certain areas, or Lebanon, where Hezbollah does. The Taliban controls absolutely everything. And if the U.S. foreign policy is to deliver humanitarian aid in as creative a way as possible to get it directly to the recipient, then they're going to try and figure out ways to do that to bypass the Taliban. So the aid will be in kind. For example, it's not going to be loads of cash that are being shipped to the Taliban. There's no bank account where they're getting you know, aid um, in cash, for example. But that said, if you're working with other international organizations, which the United States is, nonprofits that are on the ground, international nonprofits, the United Nations, those organizations, I will say, and I do not say this disparagingly, they have a higher tolerance of working with those types of militias or terrorist groups, or in this case, the Taliban, because they have a single goal. Their goal is to get aid to their recipient, even if it means that some of it is bypassed, some of it is shaved off. Or for example, that they have to find a way to work with the Taliban just to be allowed to operate there. So that's not unique to a lot of these organizations like the World Food Program and UNICEF. And you hear them talk about this all the time. And the United States government doesn't like it. And and again, I'm not saying they have any kind of tolerance for it. But when he came out and said, John Sapka, when he said that he couldn't state with certainty 
that USAID was not financing or funding the Taliban in any way. And then he made, he went on to make a statement that I thought was, again, almost laughable, where he said, he said it's not funny, but like these guys are fat and happy. And uh, and I don't see that, that the Afghan people, um, I see that they're still starving. And so clearly there's a problem here. What he's saying, though, isn't that it is for sure going to them. He's saying that he cannot verify that it's not. And that is a problem. That's something the U.S. government is going to have to have to deal with. But again, it's not a new problem. We dealt with it with Syria when arms were going to the Free Syrian Army. There was uh, they did go in the end to certain terrorist organizations. It's just um, it's an unfortunate situation. And they it's, it's based on how you prioritize the U.S. policy. And uh, again, not saying it's okay, but it is a very difficult not to crack. One of the questions the report puts forward, uh, Senator, is how much assistance can be diverted away from its intended use before the U.S. government determines that a particular program has become ineffective and or should be suspended. And the situation here makes the stakes higher. Uh, at least they look quite high. But how are you evaluating uh, this report, and then and then, how does it relate to how you evaluate, evaluate other spending programs? For example, how do we incorporate that into good faith political conversations? Well, you know, look. First of all, let me say that 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 was an incredibly accurate and thoughtful pres- uh, you know answer uh, on what is going on. I really appreciate what I just heard about the fact that we cannot guarantee how any U.S. dollar is spent, whether it's on health care, whether it's on defense, there's no way to guarantee something like that. And so I think people are picking up on those nuances like that, and including the, the fact that funding the Taliban means seems to suggest that they're only getting money from the United States government. And we know that that's not true either. Look, I, I think it's really difficult to have a bright line to say, once we cross this amount, once we cross this th- threshold, then it's not worth it. Um, we've got our interest. We are concerned. The UN and others, you know, have, a, a, as as was said, a little bit more tolerance. Um, but th- there is no question that aid is going to the Afghan people. It may not be enough, but aid is going to the Afghan people, and we are in a very, very difficult situation uh, with the Taliban, who are going to find ways to siphon off some of that money, who are going to find ways to continue to repress people. But I don't. I think we've got to have a, a, a some tolerance for making sure people get that, knowing that money is going to be siphoned off. Those people are desperate. They are very, very desperate over there. So I don't think you can have a bright line, Ron. I, I think it's going to—we're we, going to have to continue to monitor this. Uh, USAID is, is working in this area, I know, a lot. And I think we just have to, to continue to see where things are going. I, I, I completely—I just thought that the, the statement about the Taliban being fat, dumb, and happy was an unfortunate— a statement that should not have been made that way. It is much more serious uh, issue than that, and it tr- it 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 really minimizes um, issues and and makes it seem just so trite and offensive um, because that's just not the case. So I I don't know if I'm effectively answering the question, um, but I think for for the United States government 
you've got to continue to monitor and you've got to continue to see where things are. And I think work with our our UN and other partners to try to get them to understand that that it will be somewhat circular if we are continuing to see more money and more money and more money going to the Taliban. It is it's not going to help the overall situation, even if money is getting to the folks. So, uh, again, I may be talking in riddles as well. No, 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 not at all. Michael, I'm curious about your thoughts on the same question. I'm also curious to know how you reacted to it when you first saw the news, because it doesn't look good. And I want to save most of the politics for later on in the discussion. But but just on its face, the claim, the, the, the question mark, the giant question mark is U.S. money going to the Taliban doesn't look good. And I wonder how, how you reckon with the same, the same question. How did, the, how did this look to you when it first dropped? Uh, it looked uh, like uh, a high level of incompetence. Uh, a, a lack of preparedness, um, a lack of understanding uh, the dynamics, um, the the consequences of of policy, and I'll put that in quotation mark of the uh, the Trump uh, the end of the Trump administration um, and policy, and in question mark uh, the beginning of the Biden administration. Um, with respect to Afghanistan, the question I think most people ask looking at this, it, it, and I agree that the opening presentation was absolutely spot on, uh, the opening answer. Um, but here you're sitting and you're asking yourself, why are you giving money to the Taliban in the first place? Why aren't you giving the money directly to organizations or putting it in a lockbox that you you know these organizations can draw off to benefit the people so you don't siphon off. I mean, typical American policy, you just sort of throw money out in the wind and then everybody complains when the bad guys do stuff with it they shouldn't be doing. Um, it's not rocket science. Um, and, and so I think from, from a citizen's perspective, it speaks to the frustration a lot of people have when we get into these foreign entanglements in the U.S. Absolutely, at some point, shows that it either is incompetent or just blindsided by by events uh, with no forethought. So, when you hear the IG's report, you kind of go, "Yeah, that kind of makes sense," uh, given how how we got into Afghanistan and how we got out of it, Afghanistan, and the number of of friends, allies, um, and and men and women who were instrumental in protecting uh, our soldiers um, on the ground uh, were left behind and the Taliban Taliban is sitting there fat, dumb, and happy. (laughs) So, um, yeah, that's kind of how I looked at it. And I I get some, I obviously understand the politics, uh, but, you know, my limited experience working in the foreign policy space over the years tells me every time we, we, we sort of backdoor our way into these situations without a lot of forethought. Yeah. You raise a really important point I want to come to uh, in a few minutes about entanglements. Hagar, we were actually initially drawn to this story because the report released on Tuesday said the efforts to uphold President Biden's commitment to rescue and resettle tens of thousands of Afghan allies left behind during our withdrawal is being undermined by, and I quote, bureaucratic dysfunction and understaffing. 
The report said the U.S. is failing to resettle allies, that 175,000 Afghans are waiting for the government to process their special immigration visas or U.S. refugee applications. As of September, which is, again, over a year after our withdrawal, the U.S. had only issued about 20% of those. And by one estimate, it would take 31 years to relocate and settle all SIV applicants. One of the big problems here is understaffing. The group within the Citizenship and Immigration Services Office that handles these requests had staffing levels nearly halved from 2017 to 2021. Um, And those levels have increased, but there are still a quarter of authorized positions unfilled. So there's a couple of things I'd love for you to put on the table for us. First, remind listeners, we did a little bit of this with Molly McHugh when the withdrawal happened, but remind us, who the types of people who would be eligible for these special immigration visas are? Who are the refugees who are, we are trying to process and get out of Afghanistan uh, and, and the type of work that would have to be done? And what are, the, what, are, what are the implications of leaving these people behind? Why is it so important that we get them out? Oh, this is so bad. You know, I cringed when you were reading this quote because it's so embarrassing. And it's, you know, as Michael mentioned, it's it's it highlights a really high level of incompetence. And um, I want to dive into that and I want to paint a bigger picture after. So first, to to highlight the 175,000 applications that are backlogged uh, for those, for Afghans who want to resettle and the tens of thousands who worked for the U.S. government and the U.S. military. Um, Another, just just to add to this incompetence and backlog, the U.S. government apparently didn't never maintained a database listing all the people, all the Afghans with whom they worked while they were on the ground. So all these Afghans who worked with the U.S. government, the U.S. military, who were translators, who were drivers, expediters, you name it, who worked in the embassy, they the onus is now on them to prove that they did in fact do this work. And it's not like they can just walk to the, you know, walk into a U.S. embassy, to a U.S. consulate, show them their portfolio. It's not that simple. And there's another layer to this, which is the fact that they are targeted. They are themselves now threatened. Some of those who already were working with the U.S. government or U.S. military have been either arrested or executed by the Taliban. So these are individuals who sacrificed, who who took a risk to support the U.S. government's mission on the ground and could now find themselves in, are finding themselves in great danger and they're trying to get out. And it's one of the reasons for the backlog, as you mentioned, is the, is the low staffing. But, but another big part of it is that it would be way easier if they had maintained a database of who exactly, who exactly supported them. What were their, what were their names? What were their dates of birth? What did they do? So that they knew that these were individuals they could support later on. We always knew the mission in Afghanistan would end one day as a policy around the world. Those who work for the U.S. government, uh, foreign service nationals, we often call them, they often get green cards or certain other visas to come to the United States. That's something that that the U.S. government and State Department are used to. This isn't novel. So when I saw the information that there was no database maintained, especially for such a massive operation and and how many foreign nationals they must have hired to, to accomplish their goals... I just, I couldn't believe it. I mean, it's, it's, again, it's embarrassing and it's, it's bad because it could have implications for our future foreign operations. If we go to war elsewhere, 
or maybe it's not war. Maybe it's the DEA doing operations around the world. We, we have operations all over the world that don't involve actual violent combat. Then foreign nationals may question whether or not they really want to work with us if they think that we are lying when we say that we'll support them, that they could come to the United States, that we've got their back, that we'll protect them to a certain extent. This this throws all of that out the window. And it's 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 a travesty. It really is, because it could have serious implications for efforts that we try to achieve in our future that have serious national security implications. So that's that. I want to quickly build on what the senator and Michael were saying, just to give a bigger picture, just a quick point. And that's that the reason we have this policy toward Afghanistan to send all this humanitarian aid, to try and prevent a famine, to try and support women and children and so on, is it's not out of the goodness of our heart. I mean, maybe a little bit. The United States stands, stands for certain values, but it is also because of how badly things went in Afghanistan under the four presidents. By the way, I hate this this finger pointing at one president over another. The four of them made major mistakes. And, And at the same time, Afghanistan's a tough nut to crack. Before September 11, Afghanistan was a mess. And we also had problems with Afghanistan back then. So I don't want to pretend that it's some kind of easy issue. You don't work in national security if you don't like the things that are complicated. It was complicated. But that said, if if we if we messed it up that bad and 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 the withdrawal was particularly messed up then for our own credibility in US foreign policy around the world we cannot leave millions of afghan afghans to die and to starve we have to do something to support them and we have to pursue simultaneously policies that undermine the taliban the tools we have to undermine the taliban are growing weaker by the day. I'm not going to lie to you. Things like sanctions are not affecting them that much. We try to dismantle their financial networks. It's difficult. They have ways of working around it, um, as every criminal does. Uh, So there's that. Obviously, the military angle is now gone. And so we've got to do what we can to support the, the innocent Afghan civilians. And that's why you've got this situation where you're, I, I expect to see even after this report, the U.S. government say, yeah, but we can't not give this humanitarian aid. We can try to figure out more creative ways. We can try to monitor it more, but I don't expect it to go away based on John Sopko's statement. Senator, uh, I think there's one other thing, Hagar, that bears mentioning, just so listeners understand this. Many of these people, if I'm not wrong, these these are Afghans who came of age, who have grown up in an Afghanistan where the U.S. is stabilizing the political regime, as opposed to, uh, like they, they've known no other reality, many of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so a Taliban uh, return or takeover is, is brand new. They've never experienced this before. So I think that's a, I think that's important. S- Senator, um, I want to I want to underscore something uh, Hagar said, which was this 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 blame issue in the in the hearing. Sopko clearly places the blame for the collapse of Afghanistan across four presidential administrations. He said that the Doha agreement, which was the Trump agreement to withdraw, and then Biden's decision to go through with it, merely exacerbated the issues that were already in place. That we had ignored rampant corruption and failed to build a democratic, self sustainable Afghan state. There's obviously been a lot of news that's gone on in the last 20 months, but we haven't really had a national reckoning 
with how and why we failed so badly in Afghanistan. And I wonder what you and, and also Michael think it will take for us to really wrestle with these failures and learn from them without simply pointing the finger at one scapegoat, um, which in this case, we'll get to the politics again in a minute, I promise, but is going to be obviously President Biden. So how are you thinking about that? Well, first of all, let me say, I really don't know why the hell you have me and Michael on this at all with <laughs> I guess, our answers. They're perfect. I mean, am, am I right, Thank Michael? You. <laughs> I was going to say, can, can someone in government please call the guard? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, it, it, you know, that's exactly right. Well, you know, look, I, I don't think um, the politics are going to be intertwined in this. The, the, yes. the, the, the problem that you've got right now is that everybody always in Washington, D.C. right now wants to point the blame or take the credit, whatever the case may be. And that is a real, real problem. And, and I'm glad you mentioned that the IG's testimony and report really put the blame across four administrations here because this is a level of incompetence. It's a level of inexperience. I mean, we've not really seen anything like this that's happened uh, before. Uh, Congress is the one that funds the government. It's not the president or the administration. So this this is a, a multifaceted problem that everybody needs to do. Now, what is it going to take to really learn the lessons here? Who the hell knows with with folks up there who continually sent there and want to point the fingers at each other across the dais uh, at these hearings? It takes uh, really, and I unfortunately, I keep coming back to this on so dang many issues these days when people ask me, what is it going to take? And I'll say, it, it's going to take more profiles and courage on both sides of the aisle to go a little bit against the grain of their own political parties to accept some blame where nobody seems to want to do, um, but also try to talk to people and and get these. That's that's where it has to. Somebody's got to step out and lead, and and that is really tough to do when you go from one damn election cycle to another. But I, I really believe there are people up there that are looking at this, and and in long term, I'm hoping that we will see after this initial report that. The rhetoric, the political rhetoric will die down and folks will start to really, really examine what's going on, both with our money and also with trying to get people out of Afghanistan. There are still people that need to leave that country and we need to be working really hard in a way to try to, to, to help those folks. But, but remember, this is a situation unlike, I, and I'm not a, hist, I don't know all my history on this, I admit, but I don't think it's, I, I don't think it's like any other that we have ever had, and and therefore we, it, it was always going to be a work in progress, and mistakes were always going to be made. That is not an excuse; it's just facts. Okay, I want to come back to you in just a second about what Congress could do. But Michael, first, same question to you, and I just want to layer on one comment, which is this: this this failure in Afghanistan, um, again across four administrations, it's a long time, has not only hurt as Hagar. Uh, articulated our 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 credibility with other countries around the globe, but also our credibility at home. And it feels like this is one of the things that's exacerbating this, you know, uh, sense these isolationist tendencies on both ends of the political spectrum. On the left, you have the um, it's it's not our 
uh, it's not our right to interfere in other places in the globe. And then on the far, uh, uh, sorry, that's the left. And then on the far right, it's the, it's not our job. It's not our duty, right? It's, it, it's not our problem. Um, which, which is increasing, you know, slowly resistance to uh, increasing aid to Ukraine, uh, other, 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 uh, worthwhile enterprises for the for U.S. leadership to be exerted abroad. So I just wonder. That's that's one implication I think of this failure, which is the public opinion at home is is increasingly skeptical of U.S. engagements and entanglements. Well, uh, public opinion at home is is always a mishmash because uh, you know most people can't pick out Afghanistan on a map. So mm-hmm. let's just be honest about that. Um, we 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 don't educate ourselves. Uh, in America the way we should uh, compare to uh, our our friends around the globe about these things. So there's that. But I think more broadly, uh, as I listen to both Hadar and uh, and the senator, I'm sitting here thinking, maybe, maybe someone in the government should just open up a history book and read the last thousand years of this region and Afghanistan in particular. Bingo. (laughs) Begin to understand why the ish you're doing don't work. (laughs) (laughs) Because the reality of it is, this is no different than any other outcome for any other government that has stepped foot onto that soil and tried to control, manage, or direct an outcome to their own interest. It just asked the Russians, asked us as anybody. It just it's just not what happens there. It hasn't happened over a, in over a thousand years. You cannot go in and dictate the terms of engagement with at with the with the people uh, who live in the in the on the rocks in the mountains of Afghanistan. All right. So starting with history, understanding history. And and I think then then once you have Got that into your pores, you begin. You can begin to analyze a policy that that is consistent with you know for for the for the U.S. and our allies uh, with democratic principles. You know, um, you know around free people and putting being a check on on the bad guys. Um, but this idea that going back to the Bush administration, that we were going to somehow punish uh, the Afghanis for something uh, that, you know, is suspect <laughs> that they had any direct involvement with them in the, in the first place. Um, it, it's, it's, just, it's just ludicrous. Um, and so I would recommend the members of Congress, uh, the White House, uh, just open up a history book. Have the State Department come in and provide some history lessons um, and some some diplomatic, some real hardcore diplomatic understanding. Everyone in the room, shut your mouth up. You check your politics at the door and listen, and then begin to understand why this region is so difficult in the first instance. But why there's also, to regards earlier points, an opportunity. To, to turn a corner, turn a page, and begin to get some things right. Um, but it's not going to be the way you think it's going to be. It's not necessarily going to fit into the, the nice little box that America always likes to create and put countries into. 
Um, this is different. And it is different not just because the Russians or the Chinese or the Iranians or the Saudis or anybody else has got their fingers rolling around in it. It is different because it is the nature of the people and the nature of the land um, that dictates the terms on how you engage with them. Senator Jones, back to this question about uh, what can be done. Sopko said that the lack of cooperation from the State Department was unprecedented in his 12 years as Saigar and his two decades working in Congress. And he asked Congress to help stop the obfuscation and delay. That's Those are his words, obfuscation and delay by the Department of State. So the question is, what could Congress do? How likely do you think it is that they'll act on that plea? I, you know, it's hard to say because the, you know, the that's the one piece of this that the Biden administration has really pushed back on. Uh, they have said that they have cooperated. They've given thousands and thousands of documents. Um, you know, it's just like a lot of IGs, a lot of prosecutors. They may not be happy with what they get. Um, so I, I, I would not be surprised that if you didn't see Congress do a little bit more digging on that issue alone. Um, you know, because because the fact of the matter is, between the IG and Congress, I think any administration would expect there to be some review, uh, uh, more than some review, so a significant review of what happened in Afghanistan, what happened with the pullout, and what is going on now. So it's it's hard for me to believe that it, it that that there was as much obstruction as the IG tended to. Uh, say uh, and give the impression of. Uh, so I think that they will do that. And I think you're going to see the administration continue to push back uh, if there is more and more in the public about this to say, this is what we've done. And and th- the truth is probably somewhere in the middle between that. Uh, exactly where, I don't know. But I do think that you will see if, if the Senate doesn't do it, count on a Republican House to do it, to look at this. And we'll see. And we'll see where that goes publicly. Yeah, that's the perfect segue to the politics here, which is that the truth is probably going to be the biggest casualty in all of this. Because as we can remember, within days of the withdrawal, it became clear that the Republicans, if the Republicans took control of either chamber of Congress, Congress, that the Afghanistan withdrawal was going to be very prominently built in hearings. And last summer, we on a roundup with Mike Madrid and Mike Murphy, uh, they both predicted hearings about Afghanistan were going to be like the Benghazi's hearings on steroids. And so now here we are. Um, and I wonder, was there a missed opportunity for the Biden administration or, or Democrats in Congress to get out ahead of this? Um, Michael, what do you think? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, like so many things. Uh, this administration has wasted uh, an opportunity on Afghanistan is clearly one, particularly given the the human uh, component, the families, um, the men and women who put life and limb on the line for us. Um, you, you know, of all the foreign policy, uh, you know, issues facing the administration, this one to me um, politically. Uh, had greater resonance and, and could have greater resonance with the American people. Again, going back to what we were just talking about it, in informing this populace, um, the American people, about um, what's true and what isn't in Afghanistan, what happened and what didn't in Afghanistan. Um, that was a good moment um, to 
if not in the house uh, before they lost the house, um, then certainly uh, in the Senate uh, to to hold these public hearings, high profile, smart, informing um, hearings to avoid the knockdown, drag out, you know, crazy that you'll get from the hard right in the Republican Party who just want to, you know, put stalking horses and show in play uh, and and throw a lot of a lot of crazy stuff on the wall to see what would stick against the administration. But they didn't. And and so at some point um, that's going to happen. And it's going to happen in a way in which the administration will find itself politically playing catch up on this issue. Because again, what's going to connect the American people to this is not the foreign policy, but the human policy. How you treat people, how we treated people leaving. The images of people falling off of airplanes as they were lifting off the ground is compelling testimony to the failure of the withdrawal, the failure of our policy. Um, in in the region, but most especially our failure um, to be there for people who needed us, who were there for us. And so, yeah, the politics of this stink, um, it's, it's, it's potentially damaging. I think there will be other things that we may get into, into that will distract a bit from that um, at some point. But yeah, you know, if if the Congress, the House decided to, you know, just have one of those dog days of summer with this kind of conversation going on out there, <laughs> it won't be the only thing that's hot in Washington. It won't be uh, the only thing. The humidity yeah. and the heat. It'll be this issue. Yeah, and you know, I think we all know that's probably where this is going to head. And I, for one, think it's a shame because I think it doesn't take seriously the exactly what you just talked about the men and women who sacrificed their lives to carry out U.S. foreign policy there. And I think, I think, um, I think turning this into a circus, uh, is, is a, is a really grotesque way to deal with the, the reality. Um, Hagar, uh, I just want to give you an opportunity to land the plane here. Any other thoughts or any, any pieces of this that we've missed? No, I would only highlight two things, which is that there are two issues here that, that, that the administration and foreign policy experts need to reckon with. And the first is that foreign policy folks don't like to admit blame and they don't like to say, you still see it all the time with Syria. I handled Syria uh, for the first few years of the Syria crisis. And I am still astonished at at the colleagues I worked with who say that that the policy was right and that, and, and oh, but they made good gains and and no, it was a failure. And and I find I, it would make our foreign policy better if we are able to look at the historical mistakes of the past and write them in the future and learn from them and just say, you know what, this didn't work. And so going forward, this is how we're going to change things. And so I think the foreign policy establishment as a whole needs to needs to grapple with that. And that's both foreign policy and political, because as we know, the Biden administration has pointed the finger very heavily at the Trump one for for the failures of Afghanistan. That just doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. There were m- massive mistakes under all four presidents. So that's the first. And then the second is that this highlights something that I think this is not post-Ukraine. This is really over the last decade or so that the U.S. is grappling with around the world, which is, is the U.S. the police around the world? 
And, or, or to what extent should we be? To what extent is our job around the world uh, as a superpower, as the leader of the free world, to save people around the world, to save them from human rights abuse, to save them from famine? And the thing that always guides U.S. foreign policy above else are national security objectives. That's why we were in Afghanistan to begin with. It's that we didn't want it to be a terrorist safe haven because when it was, that's how 9-11 happened. And so that's why we were there. And we have to remember that. And that that said, though, it's it's never black or white. It's complicated. And figuring that balance out is important because it it you have, we have to see how much can we invest on policies that are just about that aren't about national security that that or or foreign policy objectives that are just about supporting U.S. values and democracy and human rights and how much um, will they focus more heavily on national security objectives and uh, you know it's a balance that's I don't think we've figured out and it's not going to be, and it's probably going to ebb and flow over the years. Um, but it's certainly something we see the U S government grappling with very heavily over the last decade or so. And so I expect that to be explored more heavily in the future. The inherent tension between Mm -hmm. American interests and American values. Yep. On Tuesday, Dominion Voting Systems settled its defamation case against Fox News for $787.5 million. The last-minute settlement was agreed to after the jury was sworn in at the Delaware Superior Court. Dominion's lead counsel, Justin Nelson, told CNN that Dominion's two goals for the defamation case were accountability and trying to make Dominion whole. He told CNN both goals were accomplished in the settlement. Settlement does not stipulate that Fox's anchors must acknowledge the lies on air, but Dominion feels that the settlement was consequential for the network. Uh, Nelson also said that the texts and email that emerged from inside Fox during the litigation process were valuable. He told reporters, what today has shown is that you have to pay a price if you're telling lies. The settlement is the largest publicly known defamation settlement for a media company in U.S. history. It dwarfs the previously top-ranking $177 million ABC paid after it uh, called a textured meat product pink slime in 2017. (laughs) Nearly $800 million is a lot of money, but Fox has a market cap of about $17.5 billion and had about $4.1 billion of cash and cash equivalents on hand at the end of last year. That's according to the Times. Now, It's not Dominion's obligation to disincentivize future lying from Fox, but should we expect this to have any impact on how Fox operates, Michael? No. (laughs) No. Next question. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on. Ditto from me. (laughs) The Fox will always be the Fox. (laughs) Fox will always try to get inside the hen house. Is gonna always be sly as is I don't know what. But look, the reality of it is, you just laid out the reasons, some of the reasons why their behavior won't change, and you layer on top of that the fact that while all this was going on, you had Tucker Carlson and company on the air still perpetuating lies and and coming up with new ones. So, you know, this idea that Fox somehow is is suddenly going to change on the heels of this, this is a win for Fox. At the end of the day, you know, and, and I know a lot of folks are frustrated about 
um, this this process. Civil litigation is very different from criminal lit- litigation. In, in criminal lit- litigation, there's a certain finality to it because there's a uh, you know if there's a guilty verdict, there's a sentencing, and you're like, thank God, right? In civil litigation, the reality of it is, if Dominion had gone to tr- gone to trial, finished up the trial, and won, guess what Fox would have been doing for the next three to five years? <laughs> appealing, appealing, appealing. Dominion would have been trying to get its money. The upside for Dominion is Fox wrote a cut a check on the day they settled for seven hundred eighty seven million. the 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 downside for for uh, Dominion is potentially. Um, that they didn't really get to lay out everything that they were able to get. So we do have this sense of not not seeing that completion, that that sense of, okay, we got the snippets, we heard, you know, uh, some of the audio, we read the the text messages from Tucker, how much he passionately hates Donald Trump. <laughs> and then, of course, sits down and does an interview with Donald Trump and pretends like that never happened. So he, I, I, I tweeted out the day this decision came out. As you know, the, the reality is for Fox, this is a victory. It, it just is because the anchors who promoted the lies won't be held accountable. They won't get in front of the, uh, the on the stand and testify. Their audience will never hear about it. Uh, the owner who okayed the lies, Rupert Murdoch, will uh, pay Dominion basically what is a rounding error <laughs> for them. Right. And the viewers who consume the lies will never know the difference. So the the question now becomes with the other lawsuits that are pending, Smartmatic lawsuits, um, the ones against Rudy Giuliani uh, and so forth, how those narratives also play out. You know, the Smartmatic lawsuit for two point some billion dollars, you know, I'm sure there's a number number that they want that's probably slightly over a billion. Um, will Fox settle that as quickly as possible on the heels of this remains to be seen. But the politics of this for for Fox is um, it's a win for them, uh, and they'll and as already evidenced by their behavior. Go ahead, Senator. Brian, can I, heard I that. can I can I follow Please. up on what Michael Please. said because I, I I agree with him and I disagree with him a little bit because. Um, I, I agree that this alone is not going to change Fox's behavior. I absolutely agree with that. However, over $700 million, even for a company like Fox, is still a stunning amount of money that they got to fork over. And more importantly, you have seen revelations thus far that Fox just can't deny. I mean, it, they, they, and, and it is going to damage them, but it is a piece of the puzzle. And so while I don't consider it necessarily a win for, for Fox, I don't all consider it necessarily a loss, even though it's a lot of money. But as Michael was just talking about, this is one piece of a longer or, or a much bigger puzzle that Fox and other provocateurs of falsehoods are going to have to deal with. You've got the semantic law. For, uh, law. It, it, just as we started talking uh, among ourselves, uh, I, I saw a report that Mike Lindell and the Pillaga is going to have to pay $5 million to someone. Remember back in 21, Lindell said, 
uh, you know, he he presented evidence that the Chinese were interfering in the 2020 election and and challenged people. I will pay you five million dollars if you prove me wrong. Well, guess what? Uh, a guy in Nevada, a Trump voter, proved him wrong, and an arbitration panel just today ruled that they got that Lindell's got to pay five million dollars because that his data had nothing to do with the 2020 election. So, you know, this can be, and I think people have to look at this, and I think it's important for folks to continue to talk about the lies that Fox peddled, uh, regardless of this settlement, and they knowingly peddled these falsehoods. Uh, I gave a talk yesterday, Michael, you would really appreciate this to a group of business leaders in, in Alabama, and it was like I'd hit them with a two-by-four when I I, I compared what happened to this to the Alex Murdahl trials in South Carolina. I said, remember, guys, when he first told that he wasn't at the kennels where the murders happened and everybody was giving him the benefit of the doubt because they couldn't figure out the motive and whatever? But then all of a sudden he admitted he lied. It was proven that he lied and it got flipped on a dime. And I said, that's a rational response. What I can't uh, with something like that, but what I can't figure out is under this facts that we know now, why the hell would anybody go turn on Fox News when they know and it's been proven that they have lied? So I think this is really a step, and I think it's a step in the right direction. I think whether whether Fox has all this money or not, there should be a lot of media on both the right and the left that are looking at this and saying, maybe, just maybe we need to be a little bit more careful in what we say and do out there. I, and, and maybe that is very Pollyannish. <laughs> I, I admit that. But I, 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 for one, am going to continue to talk about this. I hope other people do, because I think it can be the first step uh, in pulling some of our, our, our social media and our media back into a sense of facts and not just opinion that masquerades as facts. Yeah. I, I, I think I, I think I see this the same way. And, you know, there's been some celebration online. There's been a lot of celebration online about how there has now been some accountability for Fox. But if we situate this settlement in the broader context of the fight for democracy and for free and fair elections, ones where candidates can't use bogus claims of election fraud to try and steal an election, what is the, what does the settlement mean? I think that's the big question. I think a lot of people ahead of this were, you know, wondering, well, is there going to be some precedent set? No, that was never going to be the case as a defamation suit, right? The only precedent would be how much does it cost you to lie? And are you willing to pay that price? And I I wonder, going into 2024, if Fox doesn't think hard and twice about trying to do the same thing going, you know, I I, I think maybe I'm just hopeful, maybe I'm Pollyannish like you, but you can't do this, you know, forever. You will run out of money eventually. And I, I just, I hope that this has some kind of uh, moderating effect on the kinds of things they're going to allow out on the air. Michael, you seem to think no. Um, but yeah, can I just jump on that point? Yeah. One, one thing um, Senator said, I, I think, um, in answering the question, why would anybody watch Fox? Well, they're, they're, there are two reasons why they continue to. One is they're blind. They don't. They just don't know. 
talk to some of these people uh, and, and I'm sitting there going, didn't you know that this A, B, and C happened? And they're like, that's not true, right? Um, because Fox didn't tell them one way or the other. The other is just a willful ignorance. Just, I, I don't want to know. They, the, the rationalization that you've gotten on this train, there is no way off, so you just ride it. And, and so that's, that's the audience in large measure, uh, the vast majority of whom uh, won't know. I mean, Fox barely color, covered the settlement. Right. So <laughs> that's everything you need to know there. The other the other piece of it, though, is um, when you're looking at uh, how media is going to behave in the 24 cycle. If I'm Fox, I think the memo will go around from the from the lawyers that didn't go around the last time that says, basically, if you have these conspiracy theorists and these these anti-democratic individuals on your program, at the end of the interview, all you need to say is, quote, well, if that's true, dot, dot, dot. That's how they preserve having to pay. Because those lawyers didn't send that memo around, they had to pay $787 million. They sent that memo around in 2020 saying, you know, when you've got Mr. You know, Pillow Guy on your show, or Rudy Giuliani on the show say spotting all this crazy that everybody, all the anchors were talking about amongst themselves. You know, all they had to say was, well, if that's true. Yeah. If, that's, if, that, if that's true, are you going to issue another $5 million challenge? Because <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot of pillows. That's a lot of pillows. <laughs> but but for for defamation and for and for the the, the requirements that are necessary for this type of a case, those words changes the entire uh, litigation uh, prospects. And so we'll see if that happens. We hear more of that coming from Fox. My point being, this still will create the platform for the lying, particularly if Donald Trump is the nominee, right? Because at the end of the day, say what they want, they may they may want to dance with a DeSantis right now, but if Donald Donald Trump is the nominee, they're gonna dance with Donald Trump. So that, that because their audience wants that, and their audience has already indicated that their audience is not flipping out over not covering uh, as much of uh, 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 covering too much of of uh, they are flipping out of covering too much of DeSantis and not enough of Trump. So you you see these dynamics playing and roiling around in that network in a way that this is no longer about journalism, folks. We know that, right? They've, they've stopped pretending to be anything remotely close to a journalistic organization a while ago. So now it's going to be, how do they protect themselves from libel and defamation in the future? <laughs> now that we are up to speed on some of the big stories this week, uh, I want to save a little room for what we are watching. Senator Jones, what did you bring for us? You know, I, I'm still watching um, a combination of things here in the South. Uh, I, I am watching the continued fallout, some from the Tennessee legislature uh, and, and the, the, um, the Tennessee Three and their 
initial expulsion and then coming coming back, and now revelations that are coming out about potential corruption of the Speaker of the House who called, um, you know, those young kids insurrectionists, um, and connecting those dots a little bit to the continued corruption we're seeing in Mississippi, um, also with a, a GOP-dominated uh, legislature, governor's race that had been there for a while, the $70 million um, diversion of TANF, TANF funds and more indictments coming out. You know, I mean, I've got, as you can imagine, guys, a real interest in trying to get the South a little more competitive uh, in our political system, not not to flip anything necessarily, although personally I'd love that, but to get things competitive. And I think that that's how you, I think that's how we as a as a as an area progress, and we're not doing it. So I'm watching those uh, very very carefully and trying to help connect those dots a little bit between total one party domination and the problems that are holding back a, a state and a region and the corruption that we've seen a little bit. Here, here, Michael, what's on your radar? So I've got two things on my radar. Um, one is the the internal roiling and dynamics of the emerging um, and yet not so emerging Republican primary process. Um, the fact that you've had um, Glenn Youngkin, Governor of say no. Um, you've got Chris Christie, potentially former governor of New Jersey, potentially getting in the race. Um, you're seeing this sort of ebb and flow. Um, the reality for me, until someone proves otherwise, and this is the question I'm asking anyone who, who wants to talk to me, I'm happy to talk to you if you want to run for president. <laughs> is that one question for you? <laughs> Are you prepared to lose the primary in order to win the general? Because that is the, that's the secret sauce, taking on Donald Trump. Who's going to do that? How effectively can they do it? So far, he's, it's 0 for 2, you know, um, in terms of that uh, happening. The second thing uh, I'm looking at is the impact on, of, of gun legislation, which is now coming home uh, for a number of jurisdictions. Uh, the shooting of Ralph Yarl. Uh, the young boy who went to the wrong house, knocked on the door, and got shot in the head and the arm because he knocked on the wrong door. Um, Kaylin Gillis, the young woman um, who uh, was shot uh, trying to make a U-turn um, in in someone's uh, driveway. The fact that stand your ground laws are now beginning to uh, rear its ugly head um, across the country. Um, the fact that you have states, uh, a significant number of now, who have gone to permitless carry, meaning you can carry a gun, uh, conceal carry a weapon without a permit, which means no training, no nothing. So um, how that issue, coupling with the abortion issue, um, is going to reframe, uh, unfortunately for Republicans, um, the 2024 cycle. And, and Ron, let me say, I, I totally agree with Michael on that on, on the issue about guns right now. And that, too, is connected to the whole supermajorities and Republican domination in the South, because it is where a lot of the South and the, and the Midwestern states are where these permitless carry uh, laws are being passed. And it is it is really, I think, m- more so than just simply another 
AR-15 mass shooting, all of a sudden, the things that we're seeing over the last weekend, including those four teenagers who were killed at a birthday party uh, in Dadeville, Alabama. I mean, it is something has got to be done, and it, and it is a bigger issue than simply mental health. It is simply, it's, so I totally agree with Michael as to, that's a story that can, I, I believe, will reframe a lot of what we see going on in the, the few elections we got in, in 2023 and going forward to 2024. I totally agree with that. I brought something today also, which I don't always do, but I am riveted to the blindingly fast developments taking place in AI. And, uh, and, I, and I watched this interview that Elon Musk just did with Tucker Carlson. I know, I know, I know. But Tucker doesn't really say much. So uh, about the profound danger to human civilization it poses if it's left unchecked. Um, one thing I didn't know before watching this interview, which is actually very good. I, oh man, I feel icky saying, <laughs> go watch this thing that's on Fox, but go watch it. Cause I think it's very illuminating. You'll learn something. One thing I didn't know before this interview was that the startup OpenAI, which everybody knows is the creator of ChatGPT, was essentially shepherded by Elon himself after a mind-blowing disagreement he had with his erstwhile friend, Larry Page, then head of Google. Google's DeepMind is the other major uh, competitor in this space. Google has long since considered it their mission to create artificial general intelligence. In other words, for a computer to be able to understand or learn any intellectual task that human beings or other animals can, resulting in a sort of consciousness singularity comparable to a black hole. We know that a black hole, like after the event horizon, it's impossible for us to know what happens. Larry Page, in this conversation, called Elon Musk a speciest for preferring to safeguard the well-being of humanity and characterized Google's view as believing all consciousness, whether human or machine, should be treated equally. <laughs> now, That's uh, that man, doesn't that, that freak you the fuck out. <laughs> we got problems. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. All right. Uh, <laughs> before I just don't know why we want to replace ourselves. <laughs> just, really? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe that AI can solve Afghanistan for us. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Before we flip over to Politicology Plus briefly, we're going to talk about uh, the policing shortages and the challenges to recruiting uh, and retention across the country. Where can we find you on the internet, Michael? Find me on uh, what is left of Twitter, uh, at Michael Steele. Um, but I'm also spotable uh, at Michael Steele. And you can, uh, you know, check out my the Michael Steele podcast on um, uh, at uh, Steele underscore podcast. So I'm out there trying to, trying to, you know, raise the flag for democracy on a number of uh, platforms. So Beautiful. Senator Jones? Mainly Twitter still for me, even though I, 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 I feel like I just watched a Tucker Carlson, you know, interview again. I, I don't particularly like what's going on, but that that's still my main platform right now uh, is at, at Doug Jones. Um, and then you can you can spot me in just about a lot of different places, whether it's uh, on the in the media or on podcasts like this. I am I'm staying pretty busy. I'm, I'm also at a, you know, I, I will give a plug. I'm at a, I spend some time at a law firm in D.C., Aaron Fox Chef, and I also 
uh, am a distinguished senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. So between those two, I am, uh, I've got a buffet of things that I'm working on. Wonderful. Love to hear it. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.